0: What's up, everyone? Welcome to an all-new episode of Suiting Up, presented by Public.com and OutSystems. This is episode five here of season three, and I'm your host, Paul Rabel. It's NBA All-Star Weekend, and we have the perfect guest for you. But first, a quick comment on the one-week break we took last Monday. If you follow the PLL, on Monday, the league announced that I was traded for my original team Atlas Lacrosse Club to our newest team. They're the eighth expansion team as part of our MLL merger, the Cannons Lacrosse Club, formerly the Boston Cannons, where I actually got my start in professional lacrosse. I'm bringing it up here as it's actually related to the genesis of this show. We talk about the tricks and tips, challenges of the modern athlete in sports today. We've done it with guests before. I've shared some of my personal stories. And speaking firsthand Getting traded is hard. No matter the circumstance, it's hard when it's the athlete's decision in free agency. It's hard when the coaches part ways with the player. It marks the end of that relationship with the coaches, your teammates, a fan base. And there's also a lot of doubt that ensues, chatter, but with the right amount of effort and encouragement and people in your corner, there's optimism. And if you don't play sports, think about the end of a romantic relationship, moving on from a job. It stings no matter how you cut it. But as individuals, we're hopefully taught to lick our wounds, plan, prepare, remotivate, and move on. So tying back to the show, I was met with some indecision last week on whether or not to publish Lindsey Vonn's episode, but knew that the bigger item at hand was processing the trade, speaking with my former coaches, my new coaches, former teammates, representatives, and others. I care deeply about this show. Putting together a great interview that's informative, can be helpful, and in a best case scenario, will motivate us. Delivering on that show and promoting it felt challenging. It also felt a little tone deaf. And I bring all this up to say that just this small moment in time, the predicament that I was in, is actually becoming more common to the modern athlete today who is doing more than just playing their sport. J.J. Watt declared for free agency and took us through the entire process over the last few weeks, all through his social. Trevor Bauer got beamed for his digital team, leaking the news of his free agency to a new ball club early. Athletes like Serena Williams, they share the court with athletes who watched them play when they were a mere seven years old. She's also a mother, investing in women's sports and servicing a whole host of sponsorship agreements at the same time. And probably one of the best examples of the modern athlete is the one we're lucky to host today, Steph Curry. He's a generational talent. He's changed the game just by the way he plays. You're likely to catch anyone, if not yourself, out on the court shooting a three-point shot and yelling, Curry! Whether you're shooting from the logo or three feet outside of your range, 10 feet outside of your range. He has done it consistently, and it boggles our mind every time we see him out on the floor shooting eight for 10 from beyond the arc. He's won three NBA championships, two league MVPs, has been the only unanimous MVP in NBA history. Scoring titles, all pros, all stars, but that's only the start of it for Steph. He's a husband, father of three, community member, an activist, He was one of the first big builders of an investment and venture capital portfolio. He's a media mogul. The guy has over 50 million followers across social, now runs his own production and distribution shop. He's networked and remains friends with the likes of former President Obama, Bill Gates, Dr. Fauci, Stacey Abrams, and does loads of philanthropic work, some of which we discuss on the show. So we compiled this insane amount of research on Steph and have been able to distill it into 60 Minutes. And by the way, he's an early days suiting up listener. It was a pleasure to have you, Steph. Today's show was made possible by our presenting sponsors, FirstPublic.com. They offer a whole new way to invest. Public makes the stock market social, so you can follow other investors, discover new companies you believe in, and invest with any amount of your money. They've democratized trading, giving us a place to invest and talk about it. Follow me at Paul Rabel. More on that later in the show. And OutSystems. They provide the tools to help companies quickly build apps for web and mobile to solve for your business needs. The PLL used OutSystems to help us design our COVID app for the championship series last summer, ensuring the health and safety of all players, staff, and coaches. Go to OutSystems.com. All right, Steph, awesome to have you.
1: Appreciate you having me, man. It's been a minute.
0: It's been a minute. Last time we talked, pre-pandemic. I was at a home game of yours probably dropped 40 points. I hope so. And then you were like, yo, this guy, Scott Galloway, who you had on your podcast, he's a pretty smart dude. <laughs> I was like, what you mean, you listen to my podcast? <laughs> we gotta get you on. Yeah, I've been sitting up for a minute, man. There you go. <laughs> so I was texting you before we started and I was like, man, where can we possibly begin from your youth to what you did in college, professional, what you're doing off the floor, activism, media. You have a unique relationship with your family and your dad in particular played in the NBA and everyone looks at Steph Curry and sees the three ball and these abstract ways of playing that change the game, but your dad taught you to start in the paint. And with that, it's a question that I think about with prodigies that have just redefined industries is when did you know it was gonna be basketball? Did you always know and to this degree?
1: Yeah, start with the fundamentals. I think uh, my journey was interesting because, like you said, my dad playing sixteen years in the league, so I was exposed to the highest level of basketball from the time I was born. Thankfully, the way that he approached him and my mom approached, you know, parenting in that in that crazy kind of world was to expose us to as many things as possible early and not kind of just pigeonhole me because they knew I loved basketball. I was playing on official price goal from the you know time I was two years old, but. <laughs> To not limit my options to just that, and you know, thankfully, I tried all the different types of sports growing up. Play golf, ba- basketball, baseball, football. So big on on multi sport experiences for kids. Not being specialists at that at that stage it just helped me so much just to really find myself, skill development, all that type of stuff. But then really find a passion for basketball, and that did, that didn't happen until I was thirteen. So hmm. you know, I played AAU basketball, AAU baseball. Pop Warner football up until 13, and really the the love for the game was higher than any other sport, but it was also uh, understanding how much time that I was willing to put into to my craft at that point would require me to be a little bit more focused and just be able to get through an entire you know calendar year and understand exactly how I was going to spend my time and how I was going to really Balance, playing, skill development, practice—all that type of stuff. Because you know, at that point, AAU basketball was kind of blowing up yeah. to another level, um, and the timing was 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 awesome. So at thirteen, I was like, basketball is it. That's all I'm gonna play. And you know, from there, it was falling in love with the grind, and I feel like that is part of my experiences too. Because I was never like the most gifted athlete or like the dude that just walked on the court. and It's like, oh, he's about to be a high D ad- one uh, recruit or an NBA player. I was, growing. He was the smallest kid on my team. So like the work really carried me through and I didn't mind putting in that time. So at 13, I could really kind of make that decision.
0: Do you have a mind that thinks about practice in a really regimented way where you're like, I'm gonna go out here for hours and do this same drill a bunch, or do you kind of practice creatively? Is it a hybrid? How do you build that skill?
1: I'm a lifelong learner when it comes to that. And I feel like, you know, if I answer that question, Ten years ago, it would be a totally different answer. But right now, I have the perfect balance of both. Yeah. Where – they say you practice not until you get it right, but until you you can't get it wrong. Hmm. I practice smart now, and so when I when I say that, I mean there's long hours, long days, probably more than you know your average NBA player. And you know I hold myself to a certain level of knowing what that intensity looks like and pushing myself. But I'm not just in the gym just to be in there. And part of that is I've been working with the same skill development coach for the last nine years, and we've basically grown up together. And you know seeing where my game was when I got to the league, understanding when what my niche is going to be, how to fine tune, you know, my body from a strength perspective, from a skill development perspective to get the most out of my abilities. But I have to have that creative element to it where I can kind of flip the script a little bit, go a little impromptu. And and that is part of the flair and the fun that I try to play with. But, and I said, like all the crazy shots, you take all that stuff. I practice all of them at some point, like nothing I do on the court is, is like the first time you do it. Yeah. Uh, but when it comes to my my shot mechanics, which for me is the bread and butter of what I do, there's a particular approach and um, a mentality when I'm in the gym that I have to have every time and that's you know that that game speed mentality and it's not just something I'm saying. it's really somehow I approach, you know, every hour, every minute I'm on the floor when nobody's watching in the gym that then translates to confidence and success on the court um, and also being able to, Kind of course correct when when things aren't going your way yeah kind of on the, on the fly so uh i got the perfect hybrid of it for sure
0: yeah i feel like uh when i was younger in high school and stuff when i would practice there would be a lot of wasted reps yeah and then now when we're in our 30s playing you know you're not out there wasting any time because it's just you just know it's it's going to hurt you <laughs> <laughs> actually sometimes physically I'll physically, get injured fucking around. yeah Absolutely. but starting in the paint so I remember when I was playing hoops, before I grew and had any muscles, I would shoot with two hands. And then I finally got a shooting coach and learned how to uh, do the proper gooseneck. And uh, you clapped me on Twitter for that once when I I posted a picture. (laughs) But I remember Morgan Wooten, legend from DeMatha, Uh who would have a stand underneath the basketball hoop and shoot 10 shots without pushing the ball in the hoop. And it'd have to be a full follow through no rim, and then you could take one step back and do another 10, one step back and another 10. It'd have to be all net. And I took that into lacrosse and kids see me warm up and they'll just be like, what the fuck's this guy doing? He's, he's uh, shooting from two yards from the goal. That's not a game shot. Right. But they're missing the fundamental approach to honing in on your craft. And I know from your career, I mean, it, people shout your last name whenever they shoot from outside of three. And you probably see kids all the time just using their practice to try to shoot those abstract shots. But what they don't see in your coach you're talking about is cue. All of that work that you guys are doing to get there. And you're probably shooting more fundamentally in practice, which allows you to take those off balance shots in games. Is that right?
1: That's absolutely right. Mark Jackson so eloquently put it after he was our coach and went back to the, to the broadcast booth. He said I was ruining the game by just you know, watching his kid.
0: I remember that.
1: Yeah, it was like I go to my nine-year-old kids' uh, AAU games, and everybody's just shooting outside twenty-eight footers and clanging off the backboard just because they see you doing it on the court. He's like you're ruining, you're ruining the game of basketball. And I was like, I'm gonna flip that on its head for a lot of other stuff because I like that mentality, like in terms of breaking the mold and yeah, and thinking things differently. But to your point. I always tell kids, and, and what my, my pops told me in every camp that I used to go to, uh, he would do this demonstration, basically, of how he worked on a shot, and everything he did for the first 10 minutes was in the paint. And it was form shots, it was working on mechanics, it was mechanics then lead to confidence so that when you do go out, you've seen the ball go in a bunch of times, and that changes your whole mindset of, of how you're approaching that session or that game. And I've carried that you know, throughout my entire career. So you know, even to this point now where you're shooting logo shots and all that, the mechanics are the exact same because I've worked those over and over and over and over and over again. And even, you know, when I start my my, my practice sessions now, it's the same, it's the same approach. No matter how good I feel like I've gotten, you always have to start the basics. And so uh, I appreciate that part of it too. And the messaging for the kids that watch us, like you say like they look at you all confused like why is this dude's the best they'll make you fun know, of us know. like they make fun yeah. of cam newton yeah exactly was i was about to kissed. bring that up too yeah. it was like yo <laughs> ask, ask that man how he got to this point i'm over here looking all uh, confused and, like trying to make fun of him or go at him because he's shooting two yards at the net or i'm shooting you know all the shots two feet in the paint yeah like there's a process to this the method to the madness and and i still fall in love with that like it, it doesn't ever really get old hmm. i know what the results uh come from that
0: there's an imagination component too. I think it was like, it's probably episode eight or so in the Jordan doc. It was, I think it was Kerr's episode, who's your coach, mm-hmm. when they were just having a little game, a competition after practice, shooting about five feet and outside the arc. Yeah. And they're all shooting yeah. from the hip. Because none of them, (laughs) and you know, those dudes could take jumpers from that distance, but they just hadn't seen or actually thought that they should do it yet. So there's the element, it's like talking with Tony Hawk on this show about being the first to do a 900 and then three or four people do the 900 a year later. And that's what we're seeing with the logo shot now. But there's something that has to happen. You have to have a coach that encourages Mm -hmm. you to take those risks and be okay with failing. And And you said- you dropped the other sports when you were 13. You were under-recruited, but you worked your ass off. You end up getting recruited by Davidson. You wanted to go to Virginia Tech. Your coach, Bob McKillop, yep. he helped you, from what I've gathered, continue on with confidence even when you'd have turnovers or try things that other coaches would probably bench players for doing. Absolutely. How important is that?
1: It was huge, and I feel like um, I got a good story of of how that manifested itself early in my college career it was everything you said about my journey like he took a, a chance i wanted want to be a d1 uh high d1 acc type player they thought i was too small and, you know when he came on the scene and and kind of sold me the vision of what davidson could be like me as a basketball player stepping into an opportunity to play right away and him going to be getting the best out of me like i i believe the full-fledged and when i got there he, he did two things one he Exposed me right away. The support came through trial by fire, on the, in the sense like he exposed me right away. Where we had our, our preseason workouts, and you know, when you're a freshman, you usually work out with the other freshmen. Yeah, and, and you know he saw greatness in me, and he wanted to put me in positions uh, like pressure and high expectations early to see how I would respond, knowing that I was probably going to fail right away. And, and uh, he put me with the, uh, the upperclassmen in our little 45-minute individual. So it's just me and three other upperclassmen, strong, taller, and more savvy mentally than me. And he puts us in like this two-on-two drill. And I swear to you, I felt like it was, an hour straight of me doing like closeouts from one side of the paint to the other wing. Yeah. And my point guard just driving by me and laying it up. And he's like, you're not leaving this drill until you get a stop. And I'm like, I literally can't get a stop. One, I'm tired. I'm not, I'm not at that level yet. Like this dude's been here for three years. He knows the system. He knows all this stuff. He's stronger than me. Um, and it's funny, like probably seven, eight reps in he pulls out this towel and it's like a white towel. And he's like waving it in front of my face. He's like, you want to surrender, don't you? You want to surrender. Take the towel. You can leave the workout right now. You can you, <laughs> you surrender right now. And I literally, I stared at it. I'm like huffing the puff. I'm like, no, I'm good. I'm going to keep going, keep going. I don't think I ever got to stop. We just ran out of time. But he wanted to see how I would, if I would want, if I would quit, if I would respond. And then that in turn, my, my freshman season, our first game played uh, Eastern Michigan at uh, University of Michigan. So a little uh, round robin tournament. And, Started my first game, and I had nine turnovers in the first half. And to your point and to your question, he had so much confidence in how I responded to that failure early that he was going to rock with me through that learning curve. And nine turnovers was refreshing. You're literally supposed to get your ass on, on the bench and just watch. Um, but he stuck with me. I ended up with a, a smooth 17 and 13 turnover, double-double. He double, <laughs> 13 turnovers, double-double my first game. But from there, to I, I knew I had his support. I knew he was going to shoot it to me straight, but also give me an opportunity to learn and prove that I could make a difference on the court. And then the next game, that confidence turned into, you know, I had like 34 or something like my second game of, the, of, of my college career. And from there, like you couldn't tell me anything. I knew how to put the work in. I knew I had his confidence that I was going to be able to work through that stuff, and kind of the rest was history on that front. So... Had I been in any type of like a mental mission on that front and said, you know, I'm gonna take that towel or I'm gonna walk off or whatever the case was, I would have lost that trust from him in that sense to be able to work through it and be the player that I wanted to be. So I'm forever grateful for him uh, exposing me early.
0: (laughs) You had 32, four and nine. Yeah. Next game, nine boards. Uh, everybody's saying you're undersized, at least everybody in the ACC. Virginia Tech told you to walk on. If Davidson didn't offer that scholarship and be recruiting you since you were in 10th grade, would you have gone to an ACC school and walked on? And do you see kids walk on that are ignored or underrated? I know you have your underrated tour that really helps those kids get identified But I think there's a bad rap or a stigma attached to walking on. And there are some pro players across sports that walked on.
1: It's changing for sure. Just they're going to find you where you're at. Hmm. It started with like the mid-major conversations like myself, Damian Lillard, Paul George. Yeah. That kind of flew under the radar for a while but dominated in their respective programs and positions and prove that they were NBA talent. But even a step below that, wherever the humble beginning is, like just fighting for an opportunity and betting on yourself is definitely possible. And there's a lot of examples of how you turn being overlooked and kind of count it out and flip it on its head. And to your, to your point about the underrated, tour like i've i used to have this under armor camp it was all all american camp and bring like the top you know four star five star guys and girls in high school out to the bay and we run this camp and like the second year i was like wait when i was a junior in high school i wouldn't have been invited to my no. own camp like let me uh let me hold on a second and i had an idea of trying to go find those you know, two three star recruits um that are looking for an opportunity put them together you know give them some skill development tools give them kind of a forecast of what it's going to take to get recruited in college and to know everybody wants to be high d1 everybody wants to be that scholarship player whether you're a walk-on whether you're playing d2 whether you're playing in the socon like i did yeah just having an opportunity to play and continue to double down on the work that you're putting in and get those experiences i think this generation is definitely more suited to finding those diamonds in the rough you know throughout that process
0: yeah especially with social media
1: exactly everybody's got the highlight tape now.
0: <laughs> okay we're going to take a quick break with steph to tell you about our presenting sponsor public.com day trading is in the news no doubt i've been investing with public.com for six months now and i gotta say their platform it's easy to use it's informative and it's helpful as a budding day trader an investor you're looking at him brett Now, I'm not going to tell you what to do by way of the GameStop, Rocket Mortgage, AMC, or any of the deals out there, but I do talk about my favorite companies in sports media tech and consumer goods, largely discussing trends and making predictions. First time hearing about Public means you're probably a first time listener on the show, so welcome. Public.com is a social investing network where you can buy fractional shares of thousands of companies and participate in a community that's built for collaboration and learning. You can follow me there. I'm at Paul Rabel as well as figureheads like Tony Hawk, Scott Galloway, Nicole Lappin, among some of your favorite investors and leaders in the business world. Basically, the more we get these conversations off the golf course, out of the boardroom, and into mainstream culture, the better. Honestly, it sounds a bit like Steph Curry in a way. Steph should be sponsored by public.com. Golf course, brainstorm, and mainstream culture. That's Steph. People learn through experiences, and right now, We're all experiencing the stock market together. You can download the free app at public.com forward slash suiting up. That's public.com forward slash suiting up and start with $10 in free stock on me. We can make sense of all of this together. Note, this is valid for US residents 18 and up and subject to account approval. See public.com forward slash disclosures. I've never seen anyone practice with more fun Looks like they're having a lot of fun and uh, creativity, whether like you're in the paint and before the game and you throw that lob up 30 feet in the air or you shoot from the tunnel. That's enough of a driver to get you to where you are today. But then there's the chip on your shoulder too for being under recruited, undervalued at times, sometimes not being in the top five all time greatest in the conversation when you've won three NBA championships, two MVPs, un- only unanimous MVP. Most three pointers, best shooter of all time. Like, why the fuck are we not talking top five? So do you think having a chip is more powerful than having that fun and passion for the game? Or do you think they're equal? Do you tap on one more than others in different moments?
1: I think early in the process, having the chip cemented into my DNA of just self-confidence. And when I say that, I mean, because I had the result to the work that went into it, that allowed me to walk on any floor and say I can compete with anybody because I know I put the time in and nothing was really given to me. Um, There's never a sense of entitlement on any level that I got to that things revolve around me. Like that's that's part of the, uh, the, the beauty, I guess, of how I approach things. And, and that's been a part of my DNA. So throughout this whole journey, yeah, I have fun. Yeah, I bring passion and joy to the game. Um, and I try to let that kind of lead the conversation most of the time. At certain points, when you do have success, success, the underrated or that chip on your shoulder mentality gets threatened a little bit because you can't really stay like when you win a couple championships and MVPs, you can't really say like we're underrated. I'm underrated. That's, that's now, right.
0: Yeah, you gotta change. You gotta find another motivator.
1: Yeah, yeah. But it's a part of your DNA. So like to yourself, and my inner voice is always saying that double down on it, keep grinding, whatever it is. Like have an appreciation and gratefulness for where you're at but that, that narrative or that talking point didn't really resonate at that point. It's like, I got a target on my back now. So yeah, um, I think later it's, it's become more the joy of the game and the passion of it because it is work. It is at this level, it is a job and there's so many other things that you can't control in the business of basketball and you know the revolving door of teammates and injuries and things like that. At the end of the day, I can uh, make the choice when you wake up and you got an early morning shoot around or back to back, whatever, like, Dude, I'm gonna playing in the freaking NBA. Like I'm having an amazing time getting paid to do the job that I love. And I know how much has gone into this. That's gonna carry me through you know, the rest of my career. And I'm gonna try to uplift people around me in the process.
0: Who would you say have been uh, your greatest mentors aside from your dad, Dell? Uh, it could be Coach Kerr. Um, it could be teammates. And maybe scrap the word mentor. Call it influences.
1: Mm-hmm. When we talk about Coach McKillop, he's you know, first and foremost the name that pops up because of what he taught me as a basketball player, but what he taught me as a man. Mm. I think he's the one that kind of gave me the right perspective on basketball is not open up so many doors, but how you carry yourself on and off the court is what's going to differentiate you from the next the next guy. Um, and how you walk into a locker room how you uplift people how they feel how you make people feel all that type of stuff that's how he runs his program and that's why he's you know still there to this day that's why he is davidson basketball and every player that's playing for him can kind of speak on that and as i'm thinking about this mostly it's all coaches um, mm. which is so important we'll probably talk about curry brand why i'm so passionate about that but when it comes to mark jackson he's a guy that came at the right time for me in my development coming off a bunch of ankle injuries that you talked about, you know, having a coach or an influence that's going to support you and be your biggest fan and kind of push you to levels that you might not, you know, see for yourself in that moment. He was the one that at the NBA level said, you know, we can build a team around you. We can be, you know, a championship caliber team with you running, running the show, making the decisions, leading the locker room, those type of things. And, as much as I believed in myself, hearing it from him and him being a megaphone for that was a night and day difference. Yeah. And so those three years that uh, I got to play underneath him and and got to see a different, you know, me come out on the court, that was a pivotal moment in my career, which led to uh, things didn't end up what I felt like was the right way with uh, when he got fired and Coach Kirk came in. But uh, everything kind of happens for a reason in terms of what Coach Kerr has done in terms of just managing people at this level. Yeah. And I don't want to dumb down his coaching presence to just that because it's a lot more than his experience, but he has an innate ability to relate to 1 through 15 on the roster and make you feel valued and included on a, in, a, in a team sport that we had that strength and numbers moniker. It was like legit an approach to being a championship caliber team that everybody's going to have a role. Everybody's going to have a part in winning a championship. Everybody's going to You pouring champagne on your head you're gonna have a moment that you can look at and say hey you know i i contributed i did something that you know moved the needle for this team and that's again one through 15 and everybody in the organization so they've all all three of those guys have taught me a lot just about basketball and life and a lot of you know for for a lot of different reasons
0: i'm sure people make this comparison it's so familiar given the last dance that just came out but I, i remember reading 11 rings by phil jackson and then I've always admired Steve Kerr. My family has Lebanese blood and the tragedy that had happened to his father over in Beirut. Mm-hmm. But you're one of the, actually the only player left in the NBA that's best in class that has only played on one team. That was the norm, mm-hmm. you know, 20 years ago. And uh, if you look at Kerr's time in the Bulls with MJ and even you with Clay and Pippen coming on, on a natural draft to the Bulls and then the trade for Rodman. You guys drafted Draymond, but you've got this similar vibe, three championships, two-time MVP. You know, even fast forward to uh, after you guys beat the Bulls record of winning 73 games in a, in a season, you then recommit to the organization with your supermax deal amidst everyone moving around. Does that feel like a chip on your shoulder too when you see all your colleagues kind of jumping around teams. I know it's like modern hoops and even (laughs) modern sports, but you're keeping it real and and staying in the city that drafted you.
1: Yeah, there's something to it. And I've been very outspoken about, I have a uh, strong mission to, you know, coming off these last five years and three championships to get back to that level one, do it, you know, with warriors across my chest, but to finish my career here, because to be a part of that fraternity, it would mean a lot. And to be successful and you know, get to the mountaintop, all the individual accolades is, is they're amazing. But if you're around this league long enough, you put it so well, like you see so many different seasons, yeah, you know, for a, bit of a better term, and uh, a lot of different vantage points and you know, where I'm at right now and how confident I am in my abilities and, and the roadmap going forward, how much I have left in the game to do it all in one organization and do it, building a, a championship culture from the ground up and maintaining that is... uh Definitely a chip. That's the goal. I'm I'm putting, you know, as a priority, you got, you know, the Tim Duncans, the Dirk Nowitzki's, you know, Larry Bird's, Reggie Miller's, uh, you know, even though he didn't win a championship, it's still like, he's iconic in terms of what it means to be an Indiana Pacer and like building that.
0: Malone and Stockton, you
1: know, Stockton, you can go down the list. And so that would be huge, man. Like honestly, I've said it you know, loud and clear and that's uh, hopefully going to be in my future. So
0: here's a question that I'm sure everyone in sports wants to know is how do you find yourself in a flow state or in the zone so regularly? I mean, you know, there are moments because everyone shouts it from a mountaintop when you don't go or don't shoot eight for 10 from the three-point arc. And so everyone's like, oh, what, what happened? Steph can't shoot anymore. But then you respond. So there's there's actually more difficulty in having an off night to an on night and keeping that on night. Mm-hmm. Do you have some secret sauce in getting into a flow state? And we can talk about it off air if you want, still want to keep that shit on lock. But I'm trying to figure it out.
1: <laughs> <laughs> nah, it's uh it's one of the hardest questions to answer because one like that people ask, what does that feel like? I still haven't found a good answer for it. It's like like that 62 point game was like one of those out of body experiences where literally all I need is just that much of daylight and it's going up and it's going in and for some reason that night every decision you make is the right one on the right time. Every you know cut you make I feel in balance, you know, every shot I take from the ground up my my rhythm is is locked in. And honestly, you're not thinking about anything. You're just hooping. That's right. And I think that for me is the work and the hours logging in the gym and the mental approach to not riding that emotional roller coaster and trying to stay as even keel as possible throughout the season. Because when things are going well, it's, it is an amazing feeling. When you lose, hopefully that that's not something that's going to derail my confidence at all because I've worked too hard for it. So getting to that flow state is one of the best feelings in the world. And something that every night I feel like I can get there even if it doesn't happen.
0: You feel like you can get to it in the second half? If if you have a slow first half, you feel like you can still get into halftime and jump into a flow state in the second half?
1: Paul, there's a reason that I've shot 0 for ten and two for twenty from three and all that, <laughs> everything in between. Cause <laughs> like literally every shot I feel like the next one's gonna open up that av- avalanche. And so that might be delusional. It might be like a deranged, like just confidence that I've had and Maybe something you can't teach, but it's uh it is how I approach the game.
0: Now you did that against Georgetown when when yeah, I remember that. watching yeah. that. That was my senior year mm-hmm. in college, and everyone was watching you play. And that was was <laughs> that Sweet Sixteen game. You had five yeah. in the first half. Uh,
1: yeah, second round in in Raleigh I had five in the first half, and
0: then dropped what thirty in the second or something <laughs> something crazy twenty five in the second. Yeah. Do you reset? Do you like say a prayer? Do you have a meditation, or do you just you just stay locked in all the time?
1: I mean, my faith is obviously huge in, in how I approach life and, and, and the game, knowing I'm playing for a higher purpose, and that takes a little bit of the pressure off of me, but I, mm-hmm. I, internally. But I think mostly it's that inner voice that I have. That I don't know if you're in that in that competitive uh, atmosphere. There's an internal conversation going on at all times. hundred percent. I'm just talking to myself about, oh, I should have did this last play or. Oh. It's
0: nonstop, man. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs>
1: and so like going through those reps and having all the experiences that you have under your belt, you're able to control that inner voice a little bit more. Um, you're able to keep it productive and get yourself out of those holes a little quicker. And a lot of that is. Again, the irrational confidence, again, that the work that I put in goes in, goes into it. It's not like I'm walking out there unprepared and saying, this is going to manifest. This is going to happen. I'm going to play well tonight. No, like, nah, I can say that, but did you put time in? Yeah. you know, More times than not, it works.
0: How do you handle being one of the most popular athletes in the world? So there's pressure that we have inward that you're talking about where we do all that self-talk and we want to perform well because we want to desperately win the game. And there's so much commitment to our teammates and our coaches and the city and the purpose. Mm -hmm. But then there's the whole celebrity element, too, which is now even bigger than it ever was for athletes, including MJ. Mm -hmm. And there I saw a study uh, a week or two ago about how you actually, not LeBron, not KD, you actually have, of the total mentions, the most negative tone tied to it. I saw that. You saw saw that? that. So 27%. (laughs) And I'm like, why is that happening? Um, But no, I get I mean, people people generally have a lot of discomfort or hate things that they cannot comprehend. Uh So if you're going to be successful for a long period of time, if you are the same size as someone who's watching your game, eating popcorn, then that makes it even more difficult and an easier path to belief if you see... Someone who's 6'8", 245, and you're like, well, I'm not that size. But now all of a sudden I'm Steph's size, and I I couldn't even come close to that. Mm -hmm. So how do you manage social, popularity, celebrity, all this stuff off the court?
1: It is one of the hardest things in the world, Like, honestly. Mm. For me, the one helpful thing is that growing up watching my dad, I, one, got to see how he interacted with fans and got to see how he handled the attention playing in the mid-90s in Charlotte being kind of... the best ticket in the city and you know going to dinner going to to the movies going anywhere like people would come up to him and i could see the graciousness that he'd have with fans and take pictures with him and and patience with him. and Mm. so that for me was a great model just to know that i'm not going to take myself too seriously when i get to you know when i got to this level so that was first and foremost but then i think as the star has grown and the platform has grown uh, my faith is huge in that because the bigger the platform the bigger opportunity i feel like i have to impact people and when I say that there's a pressure that comes with that too, because there's opportunities to stick your name, your your voice, or something, you know, to a to a mission or a cause that may not be truly authentic to you, but you feel like you can move the needle. And there's a pressure because there's so many different ways that you can, you know, get involved. Um, but for me, like I've over the last four or five years, I've learned judgment on that front to be make sure that I one I know what I'm talking about, two I'm, I'm educated on who i'm speaking for or what i'm speaking about you know who i'm aligning with yeah and uh that takes a little bit of the pressure off too so i make sure that's everything that i do is authentic and then the family piece is the last part that is is hard i, I really try not to bring work home and hmm. it's it's tough it's difficult because you know you know when you li- lose a big game or you got you know a playoff series or a game seven of the finals and you, you come home and, you know without the trophy We did in sixteen or whatever the case is. That's just oozing out of you, like the frustration, the disappointment, and all that. But I know, like when I get home, it's not fair to my kids, it's not fair to my wife that I'm not who I'm supposed to be for them. um, Mm -hmm. You know, in those moments, Uh, because they they live it all year with me and they support me all year for me to be able to do what I can, you know, get to do on the court. So it'll only be right for me to not to work extremely hard. Uh, I'm not perfect at it by any stretch, but to work extremely hard and not bring that home to be, you know, husband and dad, you know, for them. So uh, just trying to be as, as as thoughtful and proactive around it. One other thing is I had this bad habit of, of uh, Andrew Bogut. <laughs> he said on this podcast, he outed me last, I think, a couple of weeks ago. He's like, when we played together. I saw this. 15 and 17. <laughs> He's like, I used to check my, my, look at my phone and check my tweets and my mentions at halftime, especially if I was playing bad. You know, to see what people are saying. Get a little bit of motivation. You got to compartmentalize. And you got to have fun with it yeah. um, as much as possible. That probably goes to me not taking myself too seriously because you know, as passionate as fans are, like I hear it all, and you know, it's hard not to avoid it. But uh, I got to have fun with it and use it as fuel. Sometimes.
0: I mean, it's crazy. So if if you look at Twitter, the two biggest subjects of conversation are politics
1: and NBA. Hmm. And now those are kind of aligned a little bit. Yeah, more. right, right. That's a
0: good. That's a good segue for us. But, but like, it's crazy to me. But this is why the NBA is so valuable now, is that it really intersects culture and uh, humanitarianism and you know music, entertainment, fashion. Uh, so you have everyone chiming in, and uh, and the way that these algorithms unfortunately have been built over the last five years with upvoting, meaning. The more negative you are, the more likely you are to stand out and get your traditionally known as 10 seconds of fame. Absolutely. And that's what perpetuates a lot of the trolling that we see and bots. All that shit can be cleaned up. This is no joke. You know, I've seen comments I've searched and we've interacted on social before and it's across the board. I mean, JJ Reddick talks about it on his podcast and that's why sports psychologists are, are heavily involved in the NBA now because this shit is really really impactful when when people have a, everyone has a microphone and they're allowed to just talk their shit.
1: It's it's real. And the hate like you said, the hate is always louder than the than the praise and Yeah. And we're wired to think that way too. It's like a
0: Yelp review. You
1: know? <laughs> exactly. It's like yeah. how negative can we get before we find a little bright spot. But like even DeMar DeRozan and Kevin Kevin love talking about, you know, athletes mental health yep. and, and our organization up until two years ago. I didn't even know our sports psychologist. I don't even know if we have one. Then we finally got, it became a mandate across the league that we not only have one, but everybody gets introduced to him or her. um, When you join the organization, make sure that they have a resource and like little stuff like that, whether you use it or not, just knowing it's available, not having this Superman complex that you you can just wake up every day and you're just going to be fine. And everything's supposed to be great just because you're playing basketball at the highest level and getting paid or we get paid and all that type of stuff. Like, you can be human beings at the same time. And I think that's a conversation that's changing pretty rapidly and, and for good reason. So um, that's huge. And I'm happy to be playing in this era, but I guess you look back, it might be something to, you know, you talk about the Jordan Barkley era and all that, where they could just go into hiding for in between games and nobody really knew what they were doing. or there's you know, not a, you know all this chatter and stuff around him is like I'm showing up to the gym, going to practice, going home, coming back. Got the little BlackBerry two-way pager. Maybe if I yeah. want to talk to somebody, yeah. about it. a couple of burners. <laughs> man, these
0: guys, man. I, I I'll say, man, the media environment is completely different. And there was a comment around how those basketball players at the time were global superstars, like the NBA players are today. And how could they do that without social? It's an unfair argument because mm-hmm. media uh was traditionally created at the time for television print and radio and that's just where everyone congregated it just happens that now everyone congregates on social so you have the same number of heads congregating it's on a different medium now except on the linear fashion the viewer didn't get a microphone and now they uh-huh. congregate with microphones so it's It's difficult, but you're taking stands now and have been for a while, and and you had mentioned getting educated on topics. I mean, you were at the DNC in 2020 speaking with your wife. You've launched a YouTube series now. You have Bill Gates and Dr. Fauci, and you interviewed President Obama after he uh, dropped Promised Land. You even talked with Stacey Abrams. That interview was awesome. You're gonna be running for office when you're done playing?
1: Let's see, (laughs) I feel like right now, like that whole process of getting, uh, being a part of the conversation and just getting uh, involved with decision makers at the highest level, people that know what the hell they're talking about. And yeah, I talked about Stacey Abrams. Like yeah. I can't, I can't praise her enough in terms of whether you're blue or red or whatever side you are, like her story is what it's all about in terms of, you know, taking a, a very tough learning lesson situation and what you might, you know, what we all kind of deem as, as an unfair kind of result and turning that on its head and empowering people to use their voice and to kind of fight for voting rights across the board in Georgia and create a template of what that should look like across the country. Mm-hmm. Being aligned with people, like I said, that, that are living this on a daily basis and, and giving them a platform to speak and raise awareness and educate others on uh, on what's actually happening in our country. Like, I'm all about that. Doesn't I mean I'm running for office anytime soon or anything like that, but it's just being a part of that conversation. it's powerful. And you know as long as I have a platform to do it, i'm gonna i'm gonna I'm gonna keep going. We're gonna take our
0: second break of the show to highlight our presenting sponsor, OutSystems, a partner of ours that keeps our business going. OutSystems makes applications that make the difference and solve the needs of your company. Allow me to explain. OutSystems empowers their internal teams to develop and deploy innovative cloud applications for capturing new markets, delivering new services, and winning new customers for you. For the technical heads out there, OutSystems can tackle your backlog, leverage all of their new tech, and keep us up with the changing needs so that we can drive further innovation and growth. And for the PLL, that was developing our COVID app last summer where every player, coach, and staff member used it in Utah on a daily basis. It helped us clear regulatory health and safety approvals, made for a great experience, and a successful tournament. OutSystems also works with the likes of Mercedes-Benz, Warner Brothers, Honda, Exxon, and more pretty reputable companies. Build the difference with OutSystems. You can learn more at outsystems.com. The Jackie Robinsons, Muhammad Ali's, they had different Platforms and and for the same kind of conversation we just had a minute ago, athletes now can go direct to audiences and use it for social good because we're the only ones that sit at a at a discipline or our job that's audiences come from all different walks of life, political beliefs, religious, economic, socio backgrounds, because they can congregate around a ball going into a hoop, and they can celebrate that. And in the world we are in today, you don't have those two people sitting down next to each other in arena in any other circumstance because they're often their social bubbles. So actually, when athletes speak, while why we get a lot of hate and people may disagree with it, we're the only ones that can speak and have both sides hear. Mm-hmm. Even politics is broken up into major news corps. Like People who listen to Fox don't listen to MSNBC. See, yeah. Yeah. And, and so it's, it's a really interesting spot. And yeah, we, we've talked about the leadership that the NBA and the WNBA took in 2020 around Black Lives Matter and that being so impactful, and what we're continuing to do to see that translate to action, whether it's voting, in your conversation with Stacey Abrams and vote.org. You even brought your daughter, Riley, to a, a protest in Oakland, which is also part of the, the, like, the action and being a part of community. But this has existed in the NBA from a leadership standpoint for a while. And, uh, and it was seven years ago when Adam Silver took, first took the job as commissioner when the racist recording tapes came out of Donald Sterling and you all were playing against the Clippers that night and you guys were ready to walk.
1: We had a lot of conversations um, leading up to, I think that was game four, and we were playing at home. CP, Blake Griffin, DeAndre Jordan, the other side, um, we were all having conversations on, one, understanding what was actually happening. It was happening in real time. Uh, you know, The recording comes out. This is obviously in front of Adam Silver, who is freshly uh, you know, the commissioner, yeah. uh, taking over for the late David Stern. Rest in peace. And there's a lot riding on that decision from the league of what are you going to do with David with, with uh, Donald Sterling? Um you know, banning from the league immediately not letting him own any nba team ever again like uh what what what, what kind of stance are you going to make and meanwhile we're getting ready to to, to go to battle uh so for game four i know the clippers turned their jerseys inside out the warm-ups inside out and then leading into game five we had everybody in shoot around i remember like it was yesterday everybody was in shoot around we had uh our phones on watching the press conference just to find out what was the decision that I was going to make and if it was anything that was not to our liking we were we were ready to uh boycott the game that night honestly in, retro- in, in retrospect because I think the, the decision was swift and it was uh, it was it was full-fledged we were satisfied with it but I think the, the one regret I do have is that I think we should have still boycotted because mm. That moment would have been so tangible for not tolerating any type of, you know, straddling the line of of, of balancing equality and racial justice with the bottom line of of, of making money in the NBA and understanding yeah. what, our, what our jobs are. So, like, I feel like we talk about it all the time, honestly. And I think that's it has influenced a lot of things that have happened since in terms of how the the, the bubble was created this year and a lot of good that came out of how, you know, the player stance across the board and and even some of the stuff that people are broadcasting, the players are doing on a daily basis. It's been it's been an amazing movement and I feel like uh the accountability from all the, you know, the professional athletes across the board, not just the NBA, uh, to your point of being able to say, you know, we're gonna be proactive now and not just say, Yeah, oh, what do they think because, you know, they're they're making money playing they're kind of in their own worlds or they're in a situation where they might not be in touch with what's actually happening in the world like now nah, we we all come from somewhere and yeah whether you whether you want to hear it or not
0: that's right around the time I mean, maybe we met in 2015 or 16 when you did your athlete tech summit in SF. Yep. you did not just say hey i'm going to build start building my business career while i have the opportunity to versus the traditional mindset of athletes is i'm going to focus all of my time because ownership and GMs think that if I'm not every waking hour of the day when we're only practicing for a few hours anyway, thinking about basketball, then I'm on my way out. That's bullshit. So Mm -hmm. I have other interests and I'm going to start figuring those out while I'm hot because I have access to deals. I can learn and all this other stuff. And you've been building a really strong investment portfolio. You launched unanimous media. Did you ever feel pressure around saying, ah, there might be this image now that I'm focused on off-the-court stuff that might harm me, or is it going back to that resolute confidence of this is who I am and I'm going to show up in every aspect?
1: It's resolute confidence for sure that, to be kind of light for a second. Uh, the, the only time I ever felt like there might be a, uh, a threat of being distracted is when I started playing in the web.com golf tournament. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just thinking I could go out there and play they're running play. routes
0: <laughs> when, the, when the fairway's slippery on a, you know m- my man just has MCL surgery and he's running
1: <laughs> that might be the only time I was like hold on let me, let me slow down." but nah, the uh from the business side to your point it kind of happened organically in terms of I mean there's like the traditional player agent model that 99.9 of yeah of uh, of athletes are in and started to have more conversations around you know changing that kind of transactional relationship with most brand partners and sponsors into more of an enterprise mentality where you know i had a lot of access to a vast network obviously being in 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 the bay and silicon valley and which was a, a big reason we you know the tech summit existed and uh, we were able to kind of launch that but then outside of that it was like how can I think differently around you know how my time my voice the social platform my access to, to resources can be used and not just to set up success now but to set up you know an ecosystem that's going to uplift uh, each other and so across you know the media landscape like you said with unanimous done I have a bunch of, uh, of projects and uh, in the last two years well, with Sony as as, uh, as our studio lead. And it's been amazing to kind of be in the inspiration and storytelling aspect that then bleeds into, you know, those enterprise opportunities around certain legacy brand partners that that I, that I have uh, and, and grateful to work with uh, through my foundation with me and my wife with uh, Eat, Learn, Play. Yeah. And even, like you said, in the investment world, we have a, a portfolio now of about 19 companies. And. And starting to really deploy more capital and think more strategically around you know how that deal flow is coming in. So I think a lot of it is who you know, who you surround yourself with, knowing exactly what you're signing up for. Because, you know, the one learning lesson was for me, I ha- you have to keep the main thing the main thing and mm-hmm. make sure that what is opening all these doors and allowing you know the platform to grow. And while I have the opportunity to bounce that ball, that that is the priority. But I can still be smart and strategic to set up. Uh, this ecosystem that's going to be with me for the rest of my life, and it is a marathon in that respect. And so happy about you know the, the learning lessons and the growth so far, and yeah, even like you said, just being a being a situation where you, you know a guy like you shows up at the tech summit, is on a panel, you know, th- giving knowledge and and understand that you're still you know. You know are growing at light speed, and, and you have a lot to offer on that front. Um, it meant a lot to to be in that position.
0: Yeah, we got to add PLO to your portfolio. Maybe that's the twentieth company. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> yeah, I'll give a, I'll give a quick shout out though. So so golf, you know, obviously you grew up playing it, and you can hit the ball far and straight. But and you have a deal with Callaway, but you are working with HBCUs in giving access to a game that is expensive to play. Yeah. Right. And the tiger doc, which was directed by Matt Heileman, former lacrosse player at Dartmouth. And it showed during one moment that tiger was going to introduce the world of golf as the greatest ever to a community that otherwise didn't have access to it because of its, exclusivity and its expense. And so you're working with historically black colleges and universities to scholarship sponsor. And I think that's fucking awesome because it's, it's taken a passion off the court. So what some might see as a distraction, it's something that you love Mm -hmm. that gives you energy back on the court when you practice every day, because Mm -hmm. you've been playing this game for 30 plus years. And then you're also supporting the community. That's a big part of SC thirty, right? Is is it's mission base. Even your latest book club around underrated is helping authors and stories that don't get heard about or don't get talked about.
1: Absolutely. I mean I mean you said it well, I mean I followed up. That's exactly why we're doing it, and how we're doing it. It's it's uh it's exciting to know that we can I can approach the the world of golf in a very similar vein like you talked about, but to reach the underrepresented, the under resourced in that respect. because There's so much like the the tagline is talent is everywhere but opportunity isn't and hmm. the circles that I've walked in when they ask oh you play golf like I thought you're just a hooper like no nah, golf has been part of my life for a long time it's introduced me to so many different people it's taught me a lot about myself in a competitive landscape but it's huh. in the in the business world even it's created you know relationships and networks and given me access to people that I might not otherwise have and so I'm going back into the grassroots level and thinking, you know, for majority black communities, you know, the first T does a lot of great things. PGA of America does a lot of great thing there, but there's a huge gap that, that exists in terms of supporting that talent through the you know, elementary years and middle school years. And that's why you don't have any representation on the PGA tour. They just don't have that support. And so yeah. I have a North star now with Howard university that has created scholarships on the men's and women's side. Uh, it's a, obviously historically black college and university. And there's so much prestige there, but golf is now a conduit to uh, access the opportunity. And yep. now certain partners that have the same mission, working our way back um, and bringing the underrated tour to golf now too, as well. We're just scratching the surface of what this is gonna look like. And obviously the goal is to get the next black professional golf on tour. Yep. And know that we were able to help create that that opportunity. But I feel like it's, uh, it's all kind of, like you said, bringing a passion, turning it into an opportunity based on a, a different perspective and thought process.
0: Yep. You're on your way to office, man. It's public service right there, like tied into it. You, 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 We wanted to talk about the Curry brand and Coaches, and that was just relaunched, I suppose, but in a bigger way with Under Armour. And there's huge plans at the youth level all the way up, uh, but it's not just... You know, athletic performance. It is overall wellness and and teaching and coaching. They're a lifelong partner for you. Talk about what you want to do from a coaching standpoint at the youth level with UA.
1: Yeah, it's, it's multifaceted. Obviously, I've been with them for seven years, and we've been a, um, in the signature business for six. And you know, taking that platform and and turning Curry Brand as a one of the only mission-driven brands where when you participate in the brand, obviously, like you said, you're, you're participating in grassroots youth sports You're participating in the ability to support coaches and and mentors in communities that need them in terms of training, in terms of safe spaces to play. And so from product, you know, to people, to programming, there's so many different ways that we're going to show up. Um, And I just say, we're going to do it. We're going to actually execute it and, you know, uh, the goal over the next year is to create five safe spaces to play uh, we've done one in, in Oakland we're doing one in Baltimore uh, this come in about two or three months and continue to roll those out but then when we were talking about how many kids and how many coaches and, and teachers and mentors that we can reach that's where the real impact is and that's where the real difference is and so aligning all those missions under under what you know I stand for in terms of changing changing the game for good and doing good in the world and using any opportunity skill set, level of success that you have to do that, that's, that's what we stand for. So that's a pretty pretty awesome opportunity to take who I am, then on the shoulders of what we've done uh, with UA and, and, uh, and do it differently.
0: That's great, man. It, you've, always, uh, you've always struck me as a humble guy that constantly goes back to his roots and we'll end with this. So your coach at Davidson McKillop, uh, I listened to this for the first time when you were talking with President Obama about leadership and culture and you said you always remember and still apply it his core values of trust care and commitment and then i see it on your website still do you think about core values in everything you do in life on the practice court with your family your companies is that kind of starting block one is that a mandate for you
1: one one thousand percent i even got a tattooed on myself that, that tcc huh. trust commitment care because it meant so much to me and i talked about coach about how much those shared values align and align morals of how you approach any and everything and and who you surround yourself with. You only attract what you put out, I feel like. And so that for me is something that uh, is, is the beauty and the journey of it all. And holding each other accountable to that. And like I said, we don't always get it right, but when you fall back to those kind of core values and, and coach Curry, even now we, we talk about it probably every two weeks, like what are our core values as a, as a team? And we always can fall back on that as our foundation. That's how you you know, achieve success in, in, in anything. And so whatever that is for you and whatever you, know, you stand for, being consistent with that is, is something um, that we should all kind of strive for So. I'm, I'm happy that I've had people pour in my life because it's not like I figured this out on my own. Yeah. So part of that is—is where do you uh, where do you get filled? Where do you get inspired? And where do you get kind of pointed in the right direction and doubling down on that as much as you can? Um, That's what we all can do.
0: Yeah, I appreciate you bringing that TCC to this, man. It was awesome uh, having this conversation. And then you uh, you head to your seventh NBA All Star Game starter. Let's bring this MVP back for us.
1: I, I'm gonna shoot enough. Let's put it that way. Yeah, shoot enough. It's it's always hard <laughs> playing
0: those all star games. You know, it's like who's going too hard.
1: You know what I mean? But
0: let's let it let's let it fly, man. Let's take some logo shots and bring us an MVP.
1: That'll be it. There's nothing else going on in Atlanta. Hopefully, I want everybody to stay safe out like there. No, no parties, no events, no nothing. We're just going there to play basketball and come home. There you go. <laughs> all
0: right, man. Appreciate you. Yes, sir,
1: Paul. Appreciate you, man.
0: Put the house on Steph for All-Star Game MVP. I'm pulling for him. So will Brett. I know this. Also, by the time this show dropped, if you're an early listener, my Instagram may not be up yet. But in an effort to promote the show like we do each week, we challenged ourselves in a COVID environment to replicate the discipline of some of these amazing guests. We had Mark Cuban's infamous pose on the jet in week one. Sue Bird's show with a net around my neck and bottle of champagne in hand. I landed the Madonna trick that Tony Hawk made famous in a skate park downtown, El Segundo, I hit that trick. And today, while I'm going outside, I'm gonna try to hit 10 threes in a row. So we'll see if I can do it. Shout out to the greatest shooter the game has ever seen, relentless work ethic, poised demeanor, friendly, inspired, intellectually curious, Stephen Curry. For those of you who stuck around all the way through the end, snap a pic of where you're listening to the show right now, Tag us, ask a question, I'll write you a reply. My Twitter is at Paul Rabel, his is at StephenCurry30. And if you haven't done so, consider subscribing to the show on Apple Pods, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your pods, and leave us a rating and review. It goes a long way. This show is presented by public.com by creating a whole new way to invest. Public also makes the stock market social so you can follow other investors, discover companies you believe in, and invest with any amount of monies. Follow me at Paul Rabel. Every week I give some tips. Or musings on sports companies, media companies, tech. This week, I talked about Comcast, CMCSA, on the heels of our Peacock announcement, which is owned by NBC Universal, and NBC Universal owned by Comcast, by Comcast stock. I'm not a financial advisor. I just bought it today after the news because I assumed it would get a Premier Lacrosse League bump. And OutSystems, they provide tools to help companies quickly build apps, web to mobile. When it came to the PLL, they helped us design our COVID app last summer. To ensure the health and safety of all of our players, staff, coaches, and cardboard cutout fans within our bubble. They didn't use the app, but they were eligible to. Everything has been made possible by our incredible team here at PLL Podcast. Shout out producer and editor Brett Roberts. Research done by Andrew Manning. Graphics and design by Liam Murphy. Coordinated by RJ Kaminsky. And support on our overtime newsletter, the great Joe Keegan. Until next week. Actually, we're going to be back the show that was meant for last week the world's greatest downhill skier ever let's Vaughn